and I suppose going to Petra when I got off in Jordan was, you know, amazing and opened my eyes up to, I suppose, another part of the world. So it's kind of been a gateway to the world um, as well as being able to care for animals and provide feedback that helps improve systems and processes. So, G'day and welcome to episode 52 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and I'm very excited to bring today's chat to you. Firstly, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD. LAWD are specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. You can find out more at their website or in the show notes, www.lawd.com.au. Today's guest is Dr. Holly Ludeman. Her rap sheet includes she's a vet, founder and managing director of the Livestock Collective. Like all our podcasts, I wanted to understand where her story starts and where the passion comes from. We talk about her experience of putting her head up and being a face of live export at a time when the industry was facing significant external negativity. This led her to travelling from Australia to Kuwait with them to gather data and footage as to what happens on board. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, Holly. Thanks, Ollie. I always I want to say Ollie, Ollie, Ollie. That's a new way to start. <laughs> well done on a um, a great podcast series. It's um, privileged to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to. I think what I've really enjoyed about the live export piece, and particularly this conversation, like I'd say, it actually started with Hugh Dawson back midway through last year, and just understanding a bit more about where Huey came from and his position as a as a grazier um, in the live export piece. And then I thought I actually really wanted to learn more. So, yeah, it, it's incredible to have a, a vet on here. And I, I suppose, yeah, just starting off, I think there's a lot of people who come into agriculture and kind of through those high school years, it's that they want to be a vet and, and work with animals. But if you're like me, you don't get the marks. Um, but, yeah, I, su- I suppose was, was a career as a vet always on the cards for you? Uh, yeah, I think it was always that dream. I'm, I'm a grew up in country Victoria, uh, around Echuca in the Riverina, and I, but I was a townie. I lived in town and was envious of my friends' son farms, and I spent a lot of time in dairy farms or orchards or friends' properties, um, and had my pony, um, and pony club and horses was a big part of my childhood, as well as you know netball and dancing. And I think back to that country upbringing and how lucky I was. You know, it was. Um, and how lucky really your parents were just running around <laughs> after you. Yeah, well, the Murray River is, I suppose, my home, uh, and I still go back. My brothers and I have a little block on the river, um, and yeah, water skiing or wakeboarding and um, swimming in the Murray, and the, the feel of that mud in your feet is, you know, what I look forward to every Christmas. So. Uh, I think growing up in the country, um, you know, uncle was a shearer, you know, did practice um, or, you know, work experience at a vet clinic as a student and that was a passion. Um, But, again, I didn't get the marks either, Ollie, don't worry. So I was a very naughty teenager and didn't do great in year 11 and 12, I can tell you. Uh, and so I took a gap year and went to Ireland because um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll be a professional horse rider then. Uh, so I was working on a show jumping start in Ireland and I remember flying in and I'd only left Chuka probably twice in 10 years. Like I hadn't even been to Melbourne and the next thing I'm on a plane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I was fairly naive, fairly ignorant. Um, 
and then I'm kind of traveling Europe and riding horses and soon worked out I wasn't that good especially compared to the European girls. <laughs> so you're giving it a proper crack though over there? Oh no it was more just in a, um, working in some yards and being a strapper and, and loved it and then fell on my feet and ended up working in the um, racing industry more the horse racing industry for this amazing family um, and Mita Osborne still one of my biggest mentors and she was a veterinarian um, and had four kids and was just this superstar so very much inspired me to come back and keep following that dream um, and just such a great time to have that gap year after being you know in a small country town for your life and um, definitely an eye-opener um, you know being in Ireland at the time um, yeah you know, you'd be up all night at bars and then you'd be going to church at 6 a.m. in the morning <laughs> before riding your horses for the day. What a lifestyle. <laughs> uh, so then I came back and I actually got into ag science, not vet, uh, and that was at La Trobe in Melbourne. Uh, and I don't think ag science was sexy at the time. Uh, and I think even when I remember when you started the podcast, it's like the word agriculture, I think it's a bit like the word pharmacy can be thought of as, you know, big and bad uh, and have that connotation um but there was probably only 20 of us in the year that I did you know ag science whereas all the other degrees you know had huge numbers of students um even the environmental science sector was getting bigger um at that stage so but it was such a great degree I loved it and um I suppose yeah, agriculture is this, the art of cultivating animals and plants um and during that degree I did really well unlike at school and um, got a scholarship to study in England um, and then was really lucky enough to go to Papua New Guinea and I think that was one of those turning points in your life of life-changing experiences and understanding how much my role as a scientist or a service provider could influence and help people um, and so we were in East New Britain in Rabaul where there'd been a volcano um, and that had essentially covered the town. Um, and every time it rained, there'd be massive landslides. So we were working on what plants could be utilised to kind of help the soil structure. And this was just, you know, a case study as a student. And then the, um, the students from Papua New Guinea came out to Australia and we got to show them Australian agriculture. And um, that experience of sharing, you know, it is food production and sustainability of communities um, and seeing how cross, how much that cross cultures, it's probably now followed me through, you know, the next phase of my career where I've become a veterinarian and worked all over the world. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, isn't it, when you when you get the opportunity to travel and you look at, say, food production, and I just, I suppose the the, the reliance there is for everyone in a community um, for that operation or farm or whatever it might be or farms to actually be thriving. Like once you start to see that perspective and then come back to Australia, like, wow, like we are that, I think it's incredible because you understand just how fortunate we are here with the access we've got, but also I suppose the, the farming systems that have been created where it's, we, we're not reliant on making sure that the, that we're growing our own crops and have that skill set. It's up to people who dedicate their lives and specialize in that area. Yeah, I think, and because we're such an exporting nation and maybe I wasn't as aware of it, you know, in that age. And you, so I suppose we've always had a veggie farm or, you know, growing up the country, you're more aware. Um, but then understanding that food production system in another country and seeing how they would mix crops to make sure they manage disease and, um, and manage the land 
it's similar. Like I'd seen, you know, my granddad or my uncles and stuff, you know, you're managing your soil and you're managing your animals. Um, yeah, I think it's like it's like not humans of agriculture, it's humans of communities and rural communities and the way food is produced brings people together. I mean, mm. I just I just had a peach before I came on the line and it was like this nostalgic moment that reminded me of like living around Shepherd and another area where I lived in growing up and working at the cannery and yeah <laughs> um, you know that kind of connection with where your food comes from it's um yeah it crosses all cultures absolutely and so I suppose looking from the outside in it sounds like you when when you became a vet you nearly would have been destined to head down the equine path uh was that where things started off or, or where'd you go well, and after doing um, ag science, I did my honours actually in dairy reproduction. So I was um, going to do a PhD actually in the dairy area and grew up in country Victoria, um, very much a dairy area around the Chuka and Cairbrum. And But yeah, at the time, um, I'd seen lots of frustrated PhD students. So I did decide that being a veterinarian would be a great profession and um, I, and I offer a great service to whichever community I worked in. Um, and then going through vet school, um, yeah, I, I definitely thought I'd be involved in the agricultural sector um, and, and made sure I got exposure to all of that. Uh, and I did have a strong focus in the equine area as well uh, and was, you know, hoping to go back to Ireland or um, travel the world with it uh, very much so. Um, but when I graduated, I went into private practice and did a bit of everything. So um, small dogs, cats, horses, cattle. Uh, and um, But during uni, I'd also worked at the wharf, actually. It's probably my exposure. Coming from Victoria, I didn't know a lot really about live export, but um, I worked at the wharf as a drafter, actually, where um, you're just taking out reject sheep that were loading onto livestock vessels and helped put me through uni as well as pulling beers. Um, Where were they, like, exporting out of Melbourne, was it? Or I studied in Perth. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So after coming back, um, yeah, studying in Melbourne, doing ag science, and then I got into every vet school except Melbourne for some reason. So I I was in Ireland again, just travelling and having fun, and then I flew into Perth, and didn't know anyone, didn't really know the, <laughs> the place and um, have never left, actually. So, there you go. Um, yeah, so that was my first exposure was working at Wharf and then I uh, actually had a scholarship um, during my university studies and got to travel on the vessel um, as a veterinarian. Actually, I met Maz doing that and some other amazing people. So Interesting. Think, um, I'd had that bit of exposure and then after graduation um, became an Australian government accredited veterinarian, which means you can do work um, either for uh, pre-export, so preparing livestock for export uh, or on board the vessels. But, yeah, really enjoyed private practice um, and then moved into equine practice and that was a passion as well. Had great uh, mentors and vets that I worked with, but... I think um, I was a little bit underwhelmed by my profession, to tell you the truth. Yeah, and, and it's uh, a long time studying to get there. Yeah, yeah, after eight years um, and <laughs> at university and uh, a huge tech debt, I, uh, I got a little bit burnt out and I let myself become compassion fatigued, I think, like I was really passionate and I'd take on my clients and um, and really, you know, enjoyed my work. Um probably had my midlife crisis a bit early and um 
<laughs> left my relationship and my career and everything all at once and uh, took off. And hopped on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it started, I um, went to do some work for a, a vet that was working for exporters and <clears throat> I just didn't want to deal with clients for a, a month. I thought I'll go blood testing some cattle. Uh, next thing I know, I'm in Adelaide and blood tested 40,000 cattle for Russian consignments and um, travelling around, managing feedlots, managing data, which I love, uh, yep. organising people, which I love, um, and then did end up on a vessel because the vet didn't get back in time and uh, had this amazing experience with myself and 70 men and, <laughs> and my nickname was Margaret Thatcher. So... <laughs> <laughs> And so that's what I was going to, I was, yeah, was going to ask about that that first trip. Was there something that really I suppose? Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know, in 2023, Australia produced over 5.8 billion dollars worth of vegetables, though only 4.3 percent of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Those sparked a, a moment for you um, to, to, I suppose, really become passionate about it? Or was there something, yeah, was there an area which you thought, I don't like the way this is happening and I think I can have a contribution and make a difference here? I think as a veterinarian, you're a service provider and um, you offer advice to your clients. Um, and in this case, you're providing a service. Um, you know, animals need blood testing, preparation, inspecting, which, um, you know, that, that's going through a process. But what I, I found fascinating after coming from private practice was any suggestions I made and I was passionate and energetic, you know, the export companies just took it on board. Um, and I was felt like, and I still do, and that's the reason I suppose I've stayed, is that I've had more of an impact on animal welfare and than I could if I was outside the industry or if I was in any other industry. Uh, so I think going on board, you know, the first consignment and then giving feedback um, to the exporter, which, you know, led to ch implementing changes was, that was really inspiring. And just working with the, the crew and, and seeing how much they care for the animals was um, really interesting and the different cultures and the different um, personalities. So I was on a, my first voyage um, predominantly um, Muslim Pakistani crew uh, and they were just lovely and um, yeah we had, we had a great time and then getting off at the other end and being able to see um, importing markets and I hadn't been to the Middle East either before so um, you know a huge different culture and um, and I suppose going to Petra when I got off in Jordan was you know amazing and opened my eyes up to I suppose another part of the world so it's kind of been a gateway to the world um, as well yeah. as being able to care for animals and provide feedback that helps improve systems and processes so um, and then from there I suppose it just progressed and I was um, invited into kind of operational and compliance roles within export companies and I felt that was another way I've been able to have 
a bigger impact. Um, so we're either working with the other veterinarians, being able to analyse data across the supply chain, um, being able to take regulatory requirements, which I love, like reading legislation and then going, well, how do we actually put that in practice? How do we get guys out in the field or at the feedlot on the vessel to use that information and, and um, monitor systems? So. And so what, I suppose, yeah, from that, like you, so you've got the, there's a very, I suppose, granular in the detail piece of work. Like what, what do you see maybe career-wise or at least at this stage, that kind of end goal being for you? Like where do you really hope to, I suppose, make an impact and be able to hang your hat on? I really love taking businesses or helping businesses with efficiency, using data, um, lot of the companies I've worked for, it's just helping them um, move to like cloud-based systems or and I, I love being a service provider, finding efficiencies, finding, uh, giving feedback and, and being the compliance officer. It's not been easy. I'm seen as the police officer sometimes, you know, you're highlighting things that may have been done the same way for a long time um, that need to change or you're highlighting deficiencies in training, you're highlighting um, and you're highlighting the good things, hopefully. Um, so I think my end goal is, yeah, helping businesses, um, you know, like the one we for Emmanuel's is helping them constantly improve um, and you're a service provider. So I really enjoy working with the other managers and, and giving them support um, to do their roles better and, and provide them data that they can use as well. Yeah, and, and so there was an interesting when I was reading, I think there was an article prior to you joining Emmanuel. And so before you actually accepted the role you went and jumped on a ship and uh with them and you're aggregating various data points and actually seeing how they operated was that was that just something that felt right to you at the time was that some something that someone else recommended kind of really rolling your sleeves up before you jump into that welfare and compliance role yeah, when I took the role, I must admit, I'd, I'd moved back to Melbourne. I'd been working across you know, agribusiness companies that had multiple farms and I'd really enjoyed that uh, role. And when I was approached to work for Manuals, you know, the Awasi event had been undertaken. I was like, sure, live sheep exports sounds like a <laughs> job to be in. So um, I, when I started, I'd, um, I'd actually received the... ALIC, the Live Export Council's Young um, Live Exporter of the Year Award the year before, and then I'd done the um, ARL um, P Trail Program as part of that award. Yeah, cool. Um, and that was, I don't know, I think I said something else was life-changing, but that was another one of those pivotal moments where um, <clears throat> I think it's particularly the uh, personality profiling. It was just so out of my comfort zone and something that I hadn't done from a professional development point of view. I'm a scientist and I'm always about, you know, reading another article or doing more professional development in that sense. So that program I did with um, and a number of amazing people, but Thomas Green's another person from um, the Lot Feeders um, that you should definitely have on your program. But he and I were on that together and um, the Awasi event had uh, you know, had occurred and I'd worked in the live sheep industry um, and it wasn't the truth that I knew um, and I wasn't at that time aware that I was going to take a role with the manuals. So I remember we had to do a bit of a, a project as part of that um, program and, and one of the presentations I did was called Nothing to Hide. So, you know, and really being open about talking about what I'd seen in the live sheep industry was um, 
was very different to what we'd been seeing and and that wasn't my truth and that really impacted me seeing that footage um and i knew that that there's probably you know another side of the story that needed to be talked about so you know fast forward a few months and i take the role uh, with Emmanuel, one of the first things I did was kind of, you know, want to audit the supply chain, um, find out, you know, where we were at um, in, in all parts of the business. And, and yeah, it was pretty good. I was like, well, there's no urgent issues for me to address here. Like, let me take a film crew and um, and go through the supply chain and, and tell real stories. Like, that's what's missing. And I think they thought I was mad. Um, so we're going from this base of, no one ever opening up, <laughs> no one showing footage, not for anything to hide, just I think uh, that's an old mentality within agriculture, probably not just live export, get on with doing a legal business and it, it is a legal business, it's heavily regulated. Mm. Um, so I took... Um, and was that as, sorry, I'm going to jump, was that as easy as, as you make it sound or like that yeah. just saying, well, I suppose, following the Awasi piece and the footage that came out from that, basically turning up to the board or the organization which you're still fairly green and new at like and saying oh, i'm going to take a camera crew on what was the response like yeah it happened within the first few weeks i put a proposal together and um nicholas Dawes, my managing director was keen to you know do things differently and and he trusted me which you know um was you know big call um it was also you know working with the importer and the, the other exporter and saying, look, just this is what I want to do. Um, let me interview, film and show um, what you guys do really well. And, and it was as easy as that. And um, I walked into this film crew, uh, Lush Content Agency, who have become great friends and mentors before Christmas and said, follow me to Q8. <laughs> and, yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they set me up with footage on board and then um, we interviewed people here. And I think as well growing up and, you know, I love a shearing shed and I love shear, you know, seeing the shearers that have worked for this company for some of them 30 years, some of the truck drivers and the guys working the feedlot have been there, some of them for 20 years. Um, the crew on the vessel, uh, the, the importer who um, was also interviewed and um, just getting all those interviews was just, I don't know, I found it um, so rewarding. Uh, and then I did a blog myself during the voyage um, and sent that, this is probably the start of the sheep collective story, I sent that to 200 politicians when I got off the, the vessel in Q8 and said, come down and see for yourself and invited them to come on a vessel tour. So but that video got something like 90,000 views um, you know, really quickly and, and just showed that void of information. Um, that was out there. There was some gold in those interviews to um, being able to just get the, um, that authentic story from other people. So I think Osama Budai, the um, importer or CEO of the importing company, talked about um, how great it was to have other people come and see things because you don't often see, sometimes you don't see the cobwebs in the corner and you need someone else to, to talk to you about it. So um I think that authentic interviews just helped um, and filled a void and wasn't expecting it to have, I suppose, the impact it did. Um, it was more, I suppose, we had the threat of a Labor government uh, at the time. 
Um, we've had the Awasi footage or, you know, potential shutting down the trade. Um, so I suppose it was a, uh, a last chance to really show authentically the other side of the story. Yeah, far out. And in terms of, I suppose, yeah, so you mentioned there around the Livestock Collective, which started as the Sheep Collective and then amalgamated into the Livestock Collective. But how, how did that come about? Was that because there was a need to keep, I suppose, this thing separate from work or, or how did that kind of all come about? And Well, the project that I did, you know, taking a film crew um, was, you know, a collaboration with the exporter uh, Retoir and MLA as well. So it was like a co-funded project. I said, like, let's see if we can, um, you know, get some information, get some footage that we can share with the community. So it was meant to just be like a project, um, but it was a pilot project. And then I think the success of it and the, um, just social media didn't have, and I think people that were pro-industry were just really thankful to have, and producers, like the amount of producers calling me and coming up to me and saying thank you was huge, it was so humbling. Um, and I think if you look back to my journey, it was brave, you know, it was really scary to stick your head out and be the face of live export because there wasn't anything sexy about it, um, definitely at the time. And I think in my blog, I say that, like it's, it's, it's dirty, it's dusty, but it's not cruel. Um, and it's just personalising it. And I think that's what, what was successful or what has appealed to people is we're putting the faces and the stories behind uh, rural communities, both here and Australia. So Sheep Collective progressed into a non-for-profit company from there um, and we've continued to have funding from various parties um, and then people kind of yelling out for the Cattle Collective, <laughs> which we launched separately uh, and then found we were becoming a bit speciesist. Um, yeah. and I forgot about- the goats and then. <laughs> <laughs> and the buffalo and the dairy. Um, so it, it was a natural progression and... Uh, uh, we definitely started off with a team of people. It was by no means just me uh, and we called ourselves the Justice League. So we had you know, a team of superheroes that I really wanted to... Uh, there's a photo of us standing in a line and we look like you know, superheroes. <laughs> what was that uh, show we used to watch as kids? Wind, fire, water. Yeah, Captain Planet. <laughs> Captain Planet. Um yeah, we had a truck driver, we had a vet, we had uh, someone from the importing market, we had an exporter, and, and that's what it was about, was sharing that supply chain story. And uh, So now we're a company and we keep doing what we're doing, and it's um, I think we've had great support, especially now from MLA uh, and also from LiveCorp. And um, as a company, we've, you know, really about our purpose is for everyone to have a shared connection and understanding of agriculture. Um, and that comes through connection and uniting the supply chain from leadership, play the workshops that we do and empowering other people to be brave, um, transparency, showing footage, showing, uh, talking about things that are difficult um, and, and keep communicating. And so I've got a couple of questions on that, but the first thing I do want to ask, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want, but so you said you were, um, you put your head up, yeah your head up and out there and you basically were willing to take any personal hits that come with it to go and protect an industry um for it like what were there, were there low points and like 
what were they during that process or have you just blocked them out if there were any? It was definitely intense um, and I'm an, what do I say? I'm an extroverted introvert, so I definitely, like, I, I can um, be confident on the outside, but there's definitely times where the imposter syndrome can set in um, and there was a lot of media, um, a lot of coverage that didn't want to be about me, so it was really, um, I think, nice that there was a team of us, like, doing this together. Um, so that it was definitely confronting and you do get some activist attention and, and those things, which I think that I've, I've worked well at not taking personally and um, a lot of the support we've had and the training we've done around shared values um, helped prepare me for that. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely that it's been intense um, and uh, managing social media channels and, and huge um, engagement uh, came with its challenges for sure. Um, but I think the payoff was it kept driving it. Um, and for me, the rewarding, one of the most rewarding parts of it to balance that off was the feedback from, say, producers. So we've had over 200 people now come on vessel tours. So actually taking sheep farmers that deliver their sheep to um, the feedlot and they go on the vessel, taking them on a tour of the feedlot and then a tour of the vessel and showing them footage and then being out at rural events um, around WA and having people come up and say thank you just balanced out that the challenges that that did that were part of being um, forward facing. Yeah, I bet, and, and it's interesting too. Like I know talking with my mates who are primary producers, and like a, a lot of what they do does stop at that farm gate, and like they're the first ones to admit it too. But they say what actually is happening beyond there and in the markets, like. Yes, it is having a direct impact on them, but the exposure and information flow doesn't really get there. So it's kind of like this disconnection that exists both ways. Yeah, and it's been great getting working with some of those producers. I have Bindi Murray, who's um, a sheep producer, and Stephen Bolt, who's one of our directors as well. Like working with them, and they've now visited the Middle East and followed, you know, the supply chain. And I think that's really important for them to have that understanding. Um, and it's not just um, as the truck drives out, um, see you later. And I think Hugh Dawson talked about that too, didn't he, about how mm. it's facing the other end of the road train. So um, I think that's I've been so fortunate to work in all parts of the supply chain. Um, and I think, you know, what happens in Australia is one thing. On board the vessel is actually just such a small part of the whole supply chain and it's done really, really well. And then one of the most rewarding parts has actually been working in markets. So I remember going to Vietnam for a week and you end up there for six weeks, <laughs> going to the Middle East and, and seeing how amazing um, the input that Australia has had has on um, our livestock at the other end. And I think Kari Moffat touched on that as well. It's um, it's yeah, it's it's phenomenal the impact Australia's had in these other countries. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose so. That I've I've had a few questions coming in as we've been running like the series, but kind of one that came up, which I suppose I hadn't really thought about so much, but was like when you're hitting rough seas with all those animals on board. Like, how do the animals respond when there is yeah rough oceans, and and what do they do during that time? Depends on the, the vessel. Um, I have, in my experience, we hit some rough uh, sea 
where you know, we often will move the cattle so that they're tighter um, for that period. Um, but most of the time they sit down and rest um, and they've got four legs unlike us and their balance is probably a little bit better. Um, so they do manage um, manage that and then and then it's all about us then managing rest and recovery and um, monitoring for any injuries if there is um, and being able to you know treat that appropriately. Yeah. And in terms of I suppose like the here and now, so there's this storytelling piece which, you're you're trying to get out there through the livestock collective and and putting it out there in terms of giving people that opportunity and access to the information uh, that's there but what um like what do you see being on the horizon how does live export become like take that the next step to being yes we we get create that engagement and we have that storytelling piece but then where's the next step for ensuring animal welfare and, and that education piece and training as well yeah, I think education's really important in agriculture and, and just livestock production. And I think that's why we've called it the Livestock Collective, because I think there can be animal welfare issues on long distance transport in Australia, in feedlots in Australia. Um, and from what I've seen, you know, live export industry has been kind of, they've tried to separate it from the rest of the live stock industry which is um i think that's where i see the future is us seeing ourselves as an industry and not having this separation um the fact they're transported on a vessel for um you know different periods of time um they need to be managed appropriately no matter where they are um livestock are you know sentient animals um and they should be treated appropriately for their species one of the biggest impacts we can have is good infrastructure and that's um a lot of what australia has done you know all around the world uh, is making sure there is appropriate and effective infrastructure because that reduces the need for handling and improves um animal welfare outcomes uh, and that's the same here in Australia. There's need for improved infrastructure and handling um, on our own soil as well. Um, so I think, yeah, the future is I think we can become individualists in the agricultural industry. And that's another thing that I was really passionate about breaking down with the collective, so to speak, is it's about making sure the transport operators, the shearers, the helicopter pilots, the farmers, the feedlot hands, everyone has that shared understanding of where we're going. Um, you know, that we respect our animals, that they're treated appropriately, that we've got good infrastructure and that we call out poor behaviour, bad behaviour, call out things that might need to improve, um, adapt, um, and, you know, technology uh, uses, you know, improving things, efficiencies. Um, yeah, I think it's about uniting rather than being um, segregated. Yeah, and it's an interesting one too and something that I always kind of mull over where we look at, I suppose, in society, we say that minority groups have too much input and say, but then what I find funny, I suppose, is with ag, like when we look at the employment numbers and people directly involved in it, like the sector, if you start to individualize, it is definitely a minority group in the broader context of society. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword where if minority groups have too much say, well, it's going to be negatively impacting ag kind of more broadly but when we can start to and what we're trying to do here with humans of agriculture is start to highlight the influence that agriculture is having around people every single day and when we start to look at that well then people can identify and go oh yeah well the the restaurant down the road the chef is directly sourcing so he's directly dealing and we start to basically have these little light bulb moments and hopefully i suppose the end game is that we see a lot more 
um, connection to what agriculture is. But I think for you as well, we, we see the people and the players who are actually directly involved in the industry, really seeing their influence and hopefully talking about it as well. Cause that's where I think there is a real opportunity for us. And it nearly when it comes to talking about it and sharing stories, it seems too simple. Um, but it's something which isn't done enough of. I think that was another um, another one of those light bulb moments when I was speaking with another, you know, vet and they said that, you know, they wouldn't talk about that they worked in live export at a, at a dinner party. That's, you know, it's just they didn't want to bring it up. <clears throat> and for me that was something that, again, I was passionate about maybe <laughs> whether I can change it, but um, passionate about helping that um that feeling within our industry um, and part of the Livestock Leaders Challenge um, and creating an open space where we can, um, because I know that I'm improving animal welfare outcomes and that I'm working in a sector that cares about animals and that has constantly improving, is heavily regulated. And um, and so I, I enjoy that dinner table conversation and I can definitely always respect someone else's views and I think that's really important and food choice is hugely, hugely personal and I think we should always listen, ask, listen, ask um, to get that um, and not force our point of view um, on anyone. Uh, but having, um, yeah, that fear of speaking out is something that, I mean, you're creating a space for people to talk and um, I'm you know passionate about that through the Livestock Leaders is creating um, 100 Justice League participants that can talk about their area of expertise too. And I think that's another thing is like having transport operators or shearing contractors or, you know, like just everyone um, being able to talk um, proudly about the industry. Yeah, for sure. And I also think like just the ability to have robust discussion, like if you don't agree with someone, absolutely. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't mind one bit if someone disagrees with what I say, but let's go and have, a real conversation about it as opposed to just throw stones or have kind of unjustified or uninformed opinions. I think, yeah, it's about putting the information out there and then people can arrive at their own out, uh, decision from that. But as long how, as it's informed. How powerful have <laughs> the activists been? Like they're really clever and they've been strategic and there was a huge void of information. So <laughs> you couldn't have a robust discussion when there was only one side of information available. So I think that's um, in the live exports example of what we needed to work on. And um, I think the, the project that we've um, embarked on over the last 12 months or so is or more nearly two years since I did that first blog um, has has hugely helped fill that void and created other, I hope, other space for other people to to fill. And there's so many young, um, amazing people in our industry, like you've talked about the Young Live Exporters Network um, with a few of your guests. Um, oh, no, I was uh, looking at your photo of the, the livestock leaders and I was like, geez, there's a few guests now. There's probably not, not quite more people in it than not in terms of who's featured but uh we're certainly heading that way there's but it yeah. is a, it's a seriously impressive group of people that are really passionate about what they do but are, are willing to be the change that they want to see they're not just going to sit on the sidelines and that's what i think is incredible with the work that you're doing yeah and that's something i take into my role as a compliance officer um is the standard you walk past is the standard you accept you accept um and that's where you know i, I will challenge um 
you know, people in um, the industry and my own companies because we, we have to always be doing better. Um, and there are some things that ag needs to do better. And there's some, you know, what we want to call them, dirty little secrets that we need to call out first. And, and I think that's when, that's the nirvana for me when industry, any part of the livestock industry can stand up and talk about those things openly and honestly um, to the community and say, look, you know, we're addressing these things. We know we can do better. We're using research, um, pain reliefs, you know, a big one in the animal welfare space and um, acknowledging that and, and practices that, um, you know, there's some practices that we need to be able to explain and, and do better and do more research on whether it's um, mulesing, spaying, dehorning, castrating, those things that um, we can kind of industry avoids talking about. Mm. And we're definitely making lot progress and heading in the right direction but it is yeah it's it's one of those ones you can sweep it under the carpet and just hope that it doesn't come out and eventually it probably will or you yeah acknowledge it and and show the ways you're working on it and highlight that and yeah go from there yeah yeah that's <laughs> that's not how we need to finish this <laughs> no but okay so what i did want to um to ask you and there is well, yeah, I suppose a couple of questions. The first being just on the livestock leaders. And so you're obviously building this platform of and building the capability of young people in the industry. What do you see as like the next steps there? Do you see a natural succession or progression kind of somewhere along the pipeline? Yeah, it was, um, I didn't, I, I didn't like, you know, the word, leadership or leaders you know I was just happy to sit behind closed doors but I think um MLA you know approached me and said well, what you've done and how as a team is um is fantastic and we need more advocates and and in people willing to be um you know champions for their industry um so I think it's been so inspiring to have this I suppose a progression of more leaders and running these leadership workshops so you know, my aim is to hopefully train 100 people a year and that's our um, our kind of benchmarks and, and constantly empowering um, supply chain participants. I've already, you know, succession planning, but um, Amelia Nolan's the events coordinator and she's been running the Livestock Leaders Workshop and just a powerhouse of energy and um a great advocate herself. So um, you should come along and do one of the workshops, Ollie, actually. I should. I was looking at them a while ago and then yeah, I think, I think we better get you on. And then yeah. also lockdown, kind of this whole Victorian thing hasn't really worked <laughs> yeah, in, no, in my favour. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, it's been an interesting progression of the Livestock Collective with the Livestock Leaders. So anyone interested, head over and um, your expressions of interest are welcome. So I think it's the more people we can empower with skills, confidence um in communicating like respectfully is a big part of what we do uh, as well as you know skills in media social media how to do something like this you know do a podcast there's no way i thought i'd be able to do this two years ago it's so easy isn't it <laughs> just come on and have a chat <laughs> come on. Yeah, i would have needed a beta blocker previously like a <laughs> uh no it's not surely it's not that scary I hope not anyway. The the other question I've got, and this is something that I've kind of just started asking like every guest a while ago. And so now it's just part of every conversation. But if um, when it comes to talking about agriculture and let's say, and you might do this, but you're talking to um, a bunch of year 10 or 11 students and 
I suppose they're at that stage where they start to think about careers, but also what's next in life and that whole exciting time beyond school once you get through year 12. But what would be your messages to them around like why they should potentially consider a career um, in agriculture, not necessarily like in farming, but in the array of opportunities that, that ag can present to them? Yeah, I think uh, say yes to everything would be my advice. And um, there's just such varied opportunities. You could be um, involved in technology, science, business, law, uh, any chosen career and profession and be part of agriculture. And I think it gives you that ability or gateway to the world as well as um, a gateway to some amazing communities and people within Australia. So, um, yeah, ag science wasn't overly sexy when I did it, but I would highly recommend it. The skills I learned and, and now having two <laughs> degrees, ag science and vet, I think I use my, my ag science degree as much, if not more, um, my ability to think critically, analyse data um, and my skills in soil science, plant science, animal science, you know, all together is, um, I think was amazing and offers so many opportunities. Um, so I think it's, it's a great opportunity for students to think about. Um, and, and even if they uh, are from a rural background and, and go and do law or become a doctor and, and go back to the country, that's also so important for our, our communities um, to have those people. And, and communities are made up of you know, all different professions um, that support agriculture. So we still need our corner store and our... <laughs> um, you Nurses know, our and teachers and, and everything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's amazing actually how often this, this say yes attitude and just kind of take the opportunities as they're presented comes up. So very yeah. sound advice. It's good. Never have a meeting without an agenda is another life advice. Like even a phone call, sorry, got to have an agenda. Yeah, no, you call me out on that. And it makes <laughs> sure that the other person's organised. So, <laughs> Well, Holly, thank you so much for jumping on and having a chat and being part of this live export series, which I think you'll be the last episode in it for the month of Feb. I can't believe it's already gone. It's crazy. Fantastic, February. Thanks for having me, Ollie, and keep up the good work. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Holly Ludeman. There's a lot to her career, a lot of interesting experiences and times that she shared, and I think the insights around live export, particularly from her perspective as a vet, is is one that can't be overlooked and one that's really important in this broader conversation. Over the next few weeks, I've got a couple of mates and a few other guests coming on and maybe even a bit of a surprise to a throwback mini-series that happened uh, in 2019. Look after yourself, particularly those down in Victoria. I'm feeling for you. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you next week.